Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains some discussions of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. In 1887, a year after Vancouver was founded, August Jack Castellanos was 10 years old. And one day in the summer, he heard some strange noises coming from outside of his house. August Jack Castellano came outside and asked what was going on. And they just said, oh, yeah, you're going to get a bunch of money. Don't worry. We're turning this into a, a park and we got a road in here. And uh, yeah, yeah, you're going to get tons of money. That's Jesse Donaldson. He's the author of Land of Destiny, a history of Vancouver real estate. The man was a surveyor, and he was cutting down the corner of Castellanos' house in order to conduct a survey for the road. The Castellanos lived in the village of Cathus, one of the many Coast Salish settlements in the area on the north end of what is today downtown Vancouver. There was a First Nation settlement called Huehue uh, that had been there for thousands of years and had been a pretty important place with lots and lots of people that lived there. Kethus and Weiwei were pretty cosmopolitan places, home to Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, as well as a number of settlers of Portuguese and Chinese descent. Castellanos's father had been the chief of the Squamish people, but had died many years ago. He was buried in an above-ground tomb in front of his house. So when Castellanos was told he and his sister would be paid for their land, he had no reason to doubt the man, even though he just chopped off a piece of their house. What they didn't know was that they were already pawns in a game between the two most powerful factions in the newly formed city of Vancouver. On one side was the Canadian Pacific Railway. Back in those days, the CPR in Canada, it sort of held this 
position similar to something like you know Amazon or, or Walmart might today. They could show up, and because they had so much money, and because they had the potential to create so many jobs and make a lot of people very rich, they could kind of set the agenda. They would just ask for land, or pressure governments, or pay off members of government to get what they wanted. The CPR was the city's biggest landowner and profited greatly from the exploding Vancouver real estate market. But a different faction of upstarts was gaining influence. The Vancouver Improvement Company was another real estate syndicate owned by David Oppenheimer, the mayor of Vancouver. So when a huge chunk of land was coming onto the market, encompassing the area around Kathus and Weiwei, both of these groups wanted it for themselves. The CPR tried to take control of it, but they failed. This was the first time that the CPR had asked for something and they didn't get it right away. They didn't immediately roll over for the CPR. The CPR started to get pretty pretty worried about this, mainly because if such a huge chunk of land came on the market all at the same time and they didn't own it, they were worried that it would just destroy their property values. They started trying to figure out ways to keep it off the market altogether. It was this idea that, like, oh, if we can't have it, then nobody can. There was no way they were going to let Oppenheimer's faction get control of the land. So essentially, they just used their clout within the civic and provincial governments to just get this land turned into a park. If you've been to Vancouver, you almost certainly know the area I'm talking about. Today, it's Stanley Park, one of the great urban parks of North America. And we have this idea of Stanley Park as this kind of like pristine, untouched wilderness, which it absolutely wasn't. The trouble was that a lot of people already lived there, and they were all more or less just unceremoniously hauled out of there once the decision to make it a park had been made. Almost all of the residents of the area that was to become Stanley Park were evicted. Members of a Chinese settlement who refused to leave had their houses burned down and their livestock slaughtered. And none of the people, including young August Jack Castellanos, were paid a dime at the time for their properties. To make matters worse, in 1888, the official ceremony to open the park was held on top of the former site of Castellanos's father's grave. After it was designated a park, they pulled just about all the people out of there, replaced a lot of the trees, changed the beaches. To make it more European, they brought in squirrels that they liked better, that reminded them of home. Most people would consider Stanley Park to be the jewel of Vancouver. But it wasn't created so that urbanites could enjoy the outdoors. It was so that a powerful real estate syndicate wouldn't lose money from plummeting property values. From the beginning, Vancouver has been a real estate speculator's paradise, and it would stay that way for the next century. Vancouver has the most expensive real estate in North America. But all of the talk around it, bubbles, evictions, the fear of foreigners, none of that is new. Even the city's founding was a real estate swindle of epic proportions. Today, I'll share three stories that show that speculation, market manipulation, and displacement have not only been a part of Vancouver from day one, they're a central mechanism in how this city functions.
I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Jesse Donaldson spent many years writing articles about Vancouver history, and he very quickly noticed something odd. I had found this quote from a real estate magazine in 1911 that could have been written yesterday. It was complaining about land prices are way too high. Nobody's going to be able to afford to live here, but the streets are lined with gold. And if you can get in, you can make a fortune. And I remember being so flabbergasted at reading this, this quote because it felt like it could be written today. But then I started looking through the archives for similar quotes. And I ended up finding, I think, 10 or 15 from the 19-teens, the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s. And it was as if this same quote was being written over and over and over and over again. Anytime he delved into Vancouver history, it all seemed to come back to the same topic. It just seemed that over and over again, these stories would come back to the real estate industry somehow. It would either be a person who worked in the real estate industry or was related to someone who worked in the real estate industry or big events in the city's history just had ties somehow to the industry or, or people who were in it. Everyone knows that Vancouverites are obsessed with talking about real estate. Even when I go back home, it feels like the only things people want to talk about are the Canucks, the giant earthquake that will eventually hit the city, and property prices. And there's good reason for that. There's no other city in Canada so synonymous with the real estate industry. But the strange thing is that it's been that way from the very start. Just a year after it was officially incorporated, there were more real estate offices in Vancouver than there were grocery stores. In fact, the reason Vancouver is the largest and richest city in British Columbia is because of a corrupt real estate deal one that would define the entire history of the Lower Mainland. And to understand that deal, we'll have to go back to that most powerful of real estate syndicates, the Canadian Pacific Railroad. After Confederation, Canada's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, vowed to create a railroad that connected the entire country. And as the railroad marched ever westward, vast fortunes were made speculating on the land around it. Interestingly enough, a lot of the people who were involved with the railway were also involved with governments, were also making their own speculative land purchases. Everybody was double or triple dipping to make as much money as possible, and they would start these real estate booms and drive the prices up into insane places and then sell, move on. Often there would be a major bust following that. These boom and bust cycles would follow the railway wherever they went. One of the hardest hit places was Winnipeg. 
When it became clear the CPR would pass through Winnipeg, speculators with ties to the railroad bought up land, often at exploitative rates from Métis landholders who were forced to sell. They would quickly flip that for immense profits. Somebody who's a really good illustration of how this all went down is a guy named Arthur Wellington Ross. Arthur Wellington Ross is, he was a shyster, basically. There's no two ways about it. Wellington Ross was a lawyer who had been elected to Parliament for a Winnipeg area riding. He was very against the railroad going through particular pieces of land that his constituents were on. But then miraculously, one day, he kind of changed his mind about that and suddenly realized, oh, the CPR is really great. Coincidentally, that was around the time that they gave him a job as their land commissioner. It wasn't hard for the CPR to buy off Arthur Wellington Ross. It was the kind of tactic that they employed all the time. And he used his new position for his financial advantage. So suddenly he had all this inside information about where the rail lines were going, which meant that he could purchase land fairly cheaply. And then once the railway went through, he could flip it and sell it at hugely inflated rates. So he started to bring other people in with him, starting further out east in Manitoba. And the people that he brought in as part of what was called a land syndicate, which just sounds sinister, just the word syndicate, he would bring these people in, have them raise money, buy as much land as possible. And then as construction started, they would all make a killing. The men of the syndicate became enormously wealthy all except Wellington Ross, who didn't get out of the Winnipeg market fast enough, and he lost all of his money. So he turned his eyes to an even bigger prize, the western terminus of the Canadian Pacific Railroad. In 1981, Parliament had decided that the railroad would end in the town of Port Moody, British Columbia. And right after that was decided, speculators began to buy up as much land around Port Moody as they could. But Wellington Ross and his syndicate had other ideas. What if the railroad didn't end at Port Moody, where there was little cheap land left? If they could change the location, they could profit even more. So one day, Arthur Wellington Ross made the trip to the West Coast to meet with a man named Walter Gravely. He was a property speculator, real estate guy, worked with Arthur Wellington Ross as part of the original syndicate in Manitoba, And then was one of the first people that Ross came to when land deals were starting to come together in what would later be Vancouver. Wellington Ross gave Gravely a secret letter that revealed that the CPR terminus would be moved from Port Moody to the sleepy community of Granville, which in a few years would be renamed as Vancouver. So they bought it up for cheap and flipped it and made a fortune. And a lot of other members of that original syndicate either knew Walter Gravely or Arthur Wellington Ross or were related to people who did, but virtually all of them had real estate businesses. And then a lot of them actually ended up in civic government later. The syndicate bought off everyone. The superintendent of Indian Affairs, Dr. Israel Wood Powell, began purchasing property in the area. So did Harry Abbott, the superintendent of the CPR in BC, and the brother of one of the most powerful men in the House of Commons. Even the premier of British Columbia, William Smythe, and his provincial secretary, John Robson, bought huge tracts of land. Now, if those names sound familiar to you, Smythe, Robson, Powell, Abbott, Gravely, it's because they all have streets in downtown Vancouver named after them. In 1885, the CPR and the federal government made the announcement. The CPR terminus was moving to Vancouver, and all of those men became very very wealthy. 
the CPR made more money from the speculation sale of land in Vancouver in the mid-1880s than they made from the sale of all other CPR lands across the country combined. Before it was even a city, Vancouver's first real estate disaster had already taken place. Our second story begins on the verge of World War II in the community of Japantown. The Japanese-Canadian community is one of the more long-standing, settled communities in B.C. I'm uh, Jordan Stangeross. I'm uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Victoria and Project Director of Landscapes of Injustice, which is a seven-year grant-funded project to research and tell the history of the dispossession of Japanese Canadians in the 1940s. Most new Japanese-Canadian immigrants came around the turn of the century. And in 1907, out of racist riots in Vancouver, Canada arranges immigration restriction with Japan so that Japan agrees to limit the number of immigrants from Japan that will come to Canada. And you have a very settled community that emerges over the course of those decades. Japanese Canadians came to live in many places in B.C., including on the island and in the Fraser Valley. And in Vancouver, they mostly clustered around the Powell Street neighborhood, which came to be known as Japantown. When Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, Canada went to war with Japan, and very quickly, there's pressure from white Vancouverites to do something about the thousands of Japanese Canadians living in the city. The government decides to uproot and intern the entire Japanese Canadian population. And so that decision is taken in early 1942. And then over the course of the spring and summer in 1942, Japanese Canadians are uprooted from their homes. Many of them are first shipped to very inhumane holding facilities in Vancouver at Hastings Park and then shipped off to sites of internment in British Columbia, Alberta, and elsewhere. Michael Abe's family was one of those taken to Hastings Park. My name is Michael Abe, and I'm the project manager for Landscapes of Injustice. I'm a third generation, a sensei, Japanese-Canadian. Abe's family members were just some of the 22,000 Japanese Canadians who were interned. So my family, they basically went to Popoff and Bay Farm, but finally settling into New Denver. The older brothers and my grandfather were sent to road camps. They were involved in building of the highway along uh, the Crow's Nest Highway, number three, as well as some of them going to logging camps and just working in, in the mountains. Now, Japanese internment is a story that a lot of Canadians are familiar with. But there's one part that rarely gets talked about. A second act of indignity that was foisted upon this community. The theft and sale of all the property that they owned. In fact, when the government first contemplates uprooting and interning Japanese Canadians in the spring of 1942, at first they don't think about property at all. They're listing all kinds of government departments that need to be involved in uprooting and interning thousands of people, but there's no department that's responsible for property. Soon, the federal government placed all the property into a trust that the government would administer. But once Japanese Canadians were forced into camps, something changed. White real estate interests started to realize that there was money to be made. So in Vancouver, 
The real estate is of interest to city planners and the city government that has had long brewing plans to redevelop housing in the area of the largest Japanese Canadian neighborhood, the Powell Street neighborhood. Also, real estate agents who have been managing these properties for the custodian of enmity properties start to become interested in sales commissions and, and they start to encourage officials to think about sales. The ostensible reason for Japanese internment was a fear that they might represent some kind of a security threat during wartime. But no reasonable person could argue that their property represented any kind of a threat. So the government started to advance a fairly absurd argument to try to justify their theft. Glenn McPherson, who's the head of the Vancouver Office of the Custodian and works under the authority of the Secretary of State, makes the argument that, in fact, all Japanese-Canadian-owned property can be considered perishable. It makes the argument based on the view of the city that the Japanese-Canadians lived in a slum in the east end of the city, that slum property deteriorates in value over time. You can't rent it, it's dilapidated, it's going to be less valuable in 10 years than it is now, it's a blighted neighborhood. All of these are lies. The property, in fact, is rented. It's not showing losses. It's actually, 10 years later, it's worth double the value of what it was in the 1940s. By the 1980s, it's worth 10 times what it was worth in the 1940s. So these are all fabrications. The federal cabinet accepted these arguments and decided to force a sale of all Japanese property. This is done wide open in public. There are, there are auctions of personal belongings in Vancouver, regular auctions of thousands of belongings. Real estate's advertised in the papers very publicly. And no one's really objecting except for Japanese Canadians themselves. And the money that was raised from the sale of Japanese Canadian property was used to fund their own internment. Japanese internment existed in one form or another until 1949. And the material impact on generations of Japanese Canadians is immense. If you standardize the dollar, there was never a worse time to sell than the 1940s. Maybe partly because the market in Powell Street may have been distorted by the forced sales by the government. So when would those owners who owned in the 1940s have chosen to actually sell? What might this property have meant to their children or grandchildren? It wasn't just about land either. Michael Abe's family didn't own land, but they still lost much. But I think there are more intangible things that were, were lost. A lot of them were of working age and, and they could have gone on to school, uh, university. There's this, this loss of opportunity, both work-wise and education-wise, that uh, we won't get back. And we're just starting to get back on our feet a, a generation or two later. There are so many other stories that lost homes and farms and land and boats and cars, trucks, that uh, it's, it's hard to fathom the extent of that. That land that the Canadian government seized would go on to be some of the most valuable in the entire country. We don't know what material benefit Japanese Canadians were deprived of, but it was transformational material benefit. It was intergenerational wealth that was taken from Japanese Canadians. In 1986, a Pricewaterhouse report tried to answer the question of how much money Japanese Canadians had lost out on from the theft and sale of their property. The answer they came up with was north 
of $400 million. Our final story takes place at the event that is still celebrated today as Vancouver's coming out party. Halfway between Europe and the Orient, linking the Americas and the Pacific Rim, lies Vancouver, British Columbia. The city of Vancouver's 100-year anniversary was coming up in 1986. And to celebrate, Vancouver had won the right to hold the annual World's Fair that year. And originally, Expo was supposed to be pretty small. It was supposed to be like a transportation exhibition to celebrate 100 years since the CPR. It was supposed to be pretty small potatoes. But they realized fairly quickly that this could be used as a way of announcing Vancouver to the world. You can imagine with these Hallmark events, you have people that are very enthusiastic. This is going to be so much fun. I can't believe it's coming to Vancouver. That's Stephen Leary. He was involved with the Downtown East Side Residents Association, or DARA, in the 1980s. Expo 86 was going to be the biggest event ever held in the city up to that point, and many Vancouver landmarks were built at the time in anticipation of it, including the first SkyTrain, Canada Place, and Science World. There were these initiatives, and people thought, wow, this is, you know, growth, and we're going to have all this, and we're going to be a world-class city, which is the term that was often used. But folks like Leary were worried what it would mean for the poorest Vancouverites who lived in the downtown east side. For decades, the downtown east side was home to hundreds of single-room occupancy hotels, or SROs. They're essentially rooming houses and the housing of last resort for many people. So you had this uh, population of a lot of people on income assistance and living in these uh, base rate hotels, rooms that had a bathroom down the hall, maybe had a hot plate, but not all the time, and basically a bed and a chair. And in the 1980s that I'm familiar with, there was about 300 of those type of hotels and about over 10,000 people that used them as their their homes. One of the things about living in a hotel in those days was it was under the Hotel Innkeepers Act, which was basically about three sentences. And, And basically it was, if I don't like you, I will evict you. I don't have to give you a notice. In the run-up to Expo, advocates began to worry that all of these hotels would try to profit from the flood of tourists coming in for Expo and evict the residents. And there was uh, huge projections. You know, two million people will be visiting the fair. You know, they'll be lucky to get a place, you know, way out in the valley if they're lucky, you know, to visit and all this sort of stuff so that The sort of uh, selling side of the fair got a lot of the SRO owners really amped up that they could really make some money. Rather than renting for $250 a month, they might be able to do $150 a day or $200 a day. This is like a lot of money, and oh my God, we got to take advantage of this. Many SRO residents were elderly or disabled, and some had lived in the hotels for decades. Leary and the Downtown East Side Residents Association tried to approach the provincial government, which was run by the Conservative Social Credit Party, to allow SROs to be covered under the Residential Tenancy Act so that the residents would at least have a few rights. And that was our appeal. Give them the same rights as anyone else. As much as we could do, we couldn't impress upon them that this was going to be a problem, and unfortunately uh, came to pass. Expo was set to start in May 1986, 
and in January, the evictions began. Stephen Leary was put in charge of helping people who were evicted to find a new place to live. And so in January, I think in the first day, there was like uh, two hotels that had evicted people. Uh, basically, they gave them like the day's notice. And we were like, from that point on, for five months straight, it's just a blur of eviction after eviction because one place would be evicting 50 people. And so we had to find places. And it became more and more difficult because we had to ask the hotel we were moving them into, are you going to evict people for Expo? And we had one person evicted three times. We'd move them into a place, then everyone would get kicked out of that place. Move them into another place, everyone would get kicked out of that place. One of the hotels that evicted all their residents was called the Patricia Hotel. It had a sort of a TV lobby in the, in the front area, so guys could sit there and watch TV, and they could see what was going on outside. And that was the place that really had a lot of long-term Multiple people that had lived there for beyond 20 years. The way they did it was they said, oh, we're not going to evict everyone. We're going to get the people from the top three floors to move to the bottom two floors. And then we're going to rent out the tourists to the top floor. And that was on a Monday. By Friday, they said, ah, everyone has to go. The Patricia Hotel called up Stephen Leary and told him that they were having trouble with one of the residents. His name was Olaf Solheim. He lived 60 years in the Patricia uh, Hotel, and that was his home. Olaf was an 88-year-old immigrant from Norway and a retired logger. His nickname was the Candy Man because he used to keep candies in his pocket, and he would give candies to people, right? And that was sort of his, his thing. He wasn't a real talkative guy, and English was a second language. Norwegian was his first language, and... Uh, because of his age, it wasn't like we were able to have real discussions with him. He was in quite a fragile state. When Stephen went up to see Olaf, he couldn't understand why he was being evicted. And he says, what did I do? What did I do? That's all he, he kept saying to me. Like, he, like, what did I do wrong to be kicked out of my, my home? For him, Expo, he might have heard about it. That wasn't really his world. His world was meeting with Bob to have a coffee in the morning. That's sort of his circle of friends. The Downtown Eastside Residents Association was able to find Olaf a new place to live in a social housing project. But Olaf was still absolutely despondent. He could actually see the Patricia Hotel from the window of his new place, and he would sit on the ledge and look over to the Patricia where he used to live, which is only a few blocks away. But for him, it was over. Olaf stopped eating. You know, he was just so distraught and lost by being forced out of his place that when I would see him, we would check with him every day, basically, because we knew he wasn't eating, and this is going to be a big problem, you know, if he continued to go like that. Two weeks after he was kicked out of his home, Olaf Solheim had starved to death. Vancouver's medical health officer said that the cause of death was his eviction. He was just like heartbroken. That's what it was all about. Absolutely heartbroken that he had, that had been taken away from him, his friends, and the place that he knew for 60 years. Olaf wasn't the only person to die because of the evictions. 
For instance, after they'd been in the Patricia, someone had been given an eviction notice, they jumped out of the third floor. There was another guy in another hotel was given an eviction notice, and he threw himself in front of a city truck, and there was a number of people who elderly were forced out that the basically they never went by moving truck, they went by ambulance to the hospital because of the stress of them not knowing what would happen and that sort of thing. The irony of it all was that none of the hotels made any money off of Expo. None of the tourists wanted to stay in decrepit SRO hotels. There wasn't one success story. Out of the hotel evictions that we dealt with, there wasn't. And, and a number of them went into bankruptcy. The evictions, and Olaf Solheim's death in particular, became global news stories. But today, that's not how Vancouver remembers Expo 86. Just a couple weeks ago was the 35th anniversary of the opening of, of Expo, right? And so CBC had some stuff, the Global had some stuff, and it just it makes me just cringe to hear them talk about it. And, of course, they never talk about the evictions. They just talk about, oh, it was so great. You got this passport. And they stamped it at all the different pavilions. And it still is just, like, so visceral because I saw the pain and agony and the disruption of people. Uh, I really can't uh, handle even listening about it. It just is too much for me to think that it added anything to Vancouver. What unites these stories, the corrupt deal at the founding of Vancouver, the dispossession of Japanese Canadians, and the Expo evictions, is the idea that housing is a commodity to be bought and sold. One of the real failures of the Canadian welfare state, I think, of the mid-century was not to think about housing as a right and instead to start to think about things like healthcare as a right without seriously thinking about what it would mean to think that being well housed is a right that Canadians might have. Vancouver has always been the most obscene example of this ideology. And the first hundred years of Vancouver's history were a testament to that fact. But in the 35 years that followed, things only got worse. That's your episode of Commons. This is our first episode in a two-parter about Vancouver real estate, so make sure to check out our next one. If you liked this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Jesse Donaldson, Jordan Stranger-Ross, Michael Abe, Rafferty Baker at CBC News, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Demi Lola Oname. 
Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.